from Mintmanville, Oregon. This is Crisscrossing Science, the podcast that wants to stop, collaborate, and listen. listen. I'm Michael Crosser. Of course, you know Chad Tilburg. And today's title is Ice Ice Baby. Dun, 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 dun. Hey, Chad. I'm back with a brand new edition, Mike. It's actually invention. I looked up the the lyrics Damn this it. morning. <laughs> are you? Are you? I always said edition as well, and no, it's invention. And okay, I'm I'm back and, with a brand new invention. And so something grabs a hold of me tightly. That's all I know. I That's know. yeah. We've plumbed the depths of my Vanilla <laughs> Ice lyrics. Oh, so the well, weather is changing. The weather is changing. I woke up to uh, a little skip of snow up oh. here in the hills and cars slid off the road in front of me this morning. It was an adventure. So it's certainly apropos that you wanted to uh, talk about ice this morning. Yeah. And ultimately, towards the end, we'll get to why ice is slippery. So, okay. But the reason I'm particularly interested in this is because as a physicist, I love to think of like a unit cell or like a small example of something and see how we can amplify that out and see if those behaviors on the small scale provide clues about what's happening on on the macroscopic scale. Oh, so like if how it behaves at the small scale, if you can understand the big scale just by it's that plus a lot more of it. Right. Or if the macroscopic behavior is sort of an emergent property that you couldn't have predicted by the behavior of the individual. Exactly. Is that kind of what we're talking about? Okay. And water is actually a great example of this, of something that you can see it on the small scale and sort of make rationales for why it behaves certain ways on the macroscopic scale. So so I think most of our listeners should be aware. You've probably seen drawings of what water looks like, right? Mm -hmm. Water is, of course, H2O. So Uh there's two hydrogens attached to an oxygen. And if you've ever seen it, though, it's actually interesting because usually you have like some sort of symmetry, right? Like carbon dioxide, which is one carbon and two oxygen atoms, is just a straight line, basically. They're all just like you have oxygen, then carbon, then oxygen. Okay. Yeah. So that gives Mm -hmm. it a lot of symmetry, like rotational along that axis. And for some reason, water, the two hydrogen atoms are not straight across. They actually make an angle of 104.5 degrees. Now, what that does, though, is that actually makes this uneven, right? So mm-hmm. the side that has the two hydrogen atoms tends to be a little bit more positive than the side okay. that has the oxygen. And is it because the side opposite of where the hydrogen atoms are, is that because we've got surplus electrons? and Those electron orbitals are full? Yeah, so the, the two hydrogen atoms are sort of giving up their electrons. So we've talked about the periodic table before and how mm-hmm. oxygen has two slots that if it could fill up all its orbitals, it would be happy, I say. And that always makes you cringe. So, <laughs> so I'm going to say it again. Yeah. Okay. And so the hydrogens are sharing their electrons, but that means that effectively the oxygen side has all eight electrons just kind of on its side. and. Mm. And so then the hydrogen is left more positive. And so it makes it unbalanced. Okay. And what that does, though, is that it makes it what a physicist would call a polar molecule, mm-hmm. meaning that it has a permanent dipole. It has one side of it is positive, one side of it is negative. Mm-hmm. And and for that reason, then, it makes it very sticky. Like if we had something that was just absent a charge, like the, uh-huh. something that was just entirely slightly positive, it would very quickly attract some negative charge of some sort mm-hmm. and probably make some chemical bond to fix that situation. Uh Here, because if you zoom out far enough, it looks like it's a neutral atom. It's only when you're up close to it that you see some of the stickiness and so forth. It makes the water molecules really want to clump together. And is that because of the attraction between a side of the molecule that's slightly negative to the side of the molecule that's slightly positive of another molecule? Yes. 
Okay. Yeah. And so it's actually very interesting. I used to think of water as just being a bunch of these Mickey Mouse ears just kind of bouncing around doing all this sort of things, right? <laughs> uh-huh. But in reality, the water is so sticky to itself that it actually clumps together. And so you don't have just like individual water molecules unless it's steam. But in liquid water, it's actually just huge clumps of H2O clusters okay. of molecules that are just kind of stuck together and, you know, not really bound to each other, but they're all just very clumpy. And and so if you if you had a glass of water, would you consider all the water molecules in that glass of water to be one clump? No, I would, I would consider clumps of, I shouldn't give a number, but I will. I'll say, you know, 10 to 20 of these Mickey Mouse ears are kind of clumped together. Oh, okay. Okay. I see. And then maybe there's a little bit of a gap. You know, we're talking about the atomic scale here, so... Mm-hmm. A little gap is not, it would still look continuous to our eyes and stuff. But, mm-hmm. And the amount it clumps up depends a little bit on how many other things are dissolved in it and how much that's broken up. We'll get into that here in a little bit. But okay. if you've lived in an area that has, say, hard water, uh-huh. basically those clusters are bigger. And if you have soft water, those clusters are, are a little bit smaller. Huh. Okay. Are we so, going to get into uh, why that's the case or w- what it is that makes water hard or soft? Yeah, we can. Okay. But let, let's get into... Examples of the stickiness first that okay. I don't know if you've ever noticed there are a lot of TikTok videos, especially where people will pour liquid into a container of some sort and uh-huh. they'll they'll intentionally keep filling it up higher and higher and higher. Actually there was a there's a game that people would play that like they went around the table, everybody had to add another drop or two to the, the water. And the uh-huh. person who made it so it actually spilt over was then thrown in the pool or something like that. <laughs> okay. And so it was, it was a very stressful video, but I, I enjoyed it a lot. <laughs> but that's because the water is sticky. You know, you would normally yeah. expect once you get up past the level of the rim, you might think that it would just all just immediately fall over. But there's actually the surface tension to it that it can go up quite a bit higher than the level of the rim. Right. So we've probably all like filled a glass of water to the point where it sort of domes up a little bit. And if you look at it straight from the side, it, the level of the water is literally higher than the edge of the glass. Yeah. So it seems to me like what you're suggesting is that if we were doing this with something that was not polar, that that would not happen. Right. So like, yeah. is I don't know, is acetone a polar molecule? Acetone is not. And so you know, okay. if you had nail polish solution and you try uh-huh. to do this game with that, it would just spill over immediately. So. It wouldn't work. Okay. Right. All right. And ultimately what's happening with, even with the dome, once it breaks, then all of the water in the dome just falls off because now uh-huh. they have a pathway to actually fall off. Uh-huh. I mean, it's sort of like on the windshield wipers and stuff. Once the drops really start falling down, then they all follow the same path because they sort of made a pathway that they can all travel down. Right. Okay. Another example of this would be, you see it a lot more in chemistry labs where you have like glass containers and you can see that the the water is actually climbing up the glass just a little bit on the edges. Mm-hmm. That again is because it's a polar molecule and, and it's attracted to ions within the glass itself. Yeah. So if anybody has ever had like a test tube, a narrow test tube with water in it, the level of the water is not perfectly straight across. Right. It's sort of like a, almost like a U shape. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the sides of that U is... And so now these are not molecules of water that are, I guess they're in part sticking to each other, but they're also sticking to the glass. Does that mean that the glass itself is charged in some way? Does it stick to other charged things? Is that what's happening? Yeah, the the glass has some built-in ions, but it is hydrophilic, definitely. So, And so if the inner surface of a test tube were lined with like wax or something, would you not see that effect? You would not see that effect, no. Oh, okay. All right. Actually, if you had wax in there, it would probably bend the other direction. Oh, yeah, sure. That makes sense. Uh Because it's repelled by the 
by the wax. Ooh, I want to do that now. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, what we're talking about are materials that are hydrophobic and hydrophilic. Okay. So hydrophilic things have some sort of charge built into them. So like table salt, for instance, has mm. table salt is just NaCl and water will actually dissolve those things by separating out the Na and the Cl. And now it's dissolved and, and it can sort of disappear. That's also actually how you can make your water softer. So if you're in an area that has hard water, you get one of these tanks that it filters everything through some sort of a salt. Mm -hmm. And so basically by tossing in some extra, let's say NaCl, by having a sodium ion, which is positive, is now attracted to the negative side of the water molecule, but it, it doesn't have an opposing negative side to the Na, right? To the sodium, it's just the positive. So it's attracted mm -hmm. to one side, but it doesn't have this cap to attract other things to it. I see. And so what will happen then is that the, the big clusters of the water will actually get separated down into smaller clusters of water. Oh, I see. Okay. And the, the reason it's called soft is because then when they're smaller clusters of water, they can actually get into smaller nooks and crannies and crevices that they otherwise would not be able to do. Huh. Okay. And then so hard water, I assume, is sort of the opposite side of that? Is that water that lacks in dissolved ions? Yeah. Okay. So Do these waters, I mean, I feel like people suggest that these waters either taste different or feel a little bit different in your mouth. Is that I can't speak to that. I can okay. speak to showering with it, though. Oh, really? It, it does make a big difference there. Yeah. And okay. well, so so let's get back to this hydrophilic. Hydrophobic would be things that are not polar themselves, that don't have charges that are neutral all by themselves. And things like oils and fats these are all hydrophobic and so mm -hmm. probably people know that water and vegetable oil that the vegetable oil will immediately separate back out and it will not dissolve and commingle very well right. with water but that also means that the vegetable oil is very hard to wash off so if you get it on your hands and stuff like that the only way you can get it off you can run it under the water but the vegetable oil may get into some of the nooks and crannies of your fingers and so forth and it takes a while for the water to actually penetrate in there and, and just scoop it out just by sort of mechanical mm -hmm. dissociation and so forth. But and so interestingly, that's what soap actually does. Okay. Yeah, we're not following the <laughs> the outline. I'm jumping all over the place. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was gonna ask you about soap, but then I was like, nope, that's not on the outline. So interestingly then, soap is something that is the molecules of soap are a long chain and one side is polar, the other side is neutral. And so mm. the interesting thing about soap is that, first of all, the polar side can break up the water molecules to make them smaller. Mm -hmm. And also the nonpolar side, the hydrophobic side, can attach to the vegetable oil or the fats or whatever that is kind of slimy and oil and stuff. Mm. And so it can actually attach to that and help you remove those things. So And so that's basically by the principle that nonpolar things can dissolve into nonpolar things. Mm-hmm. And polar things can dissolve into polar things, right? but they can't dissolve into each other. Right. And so that's part of what soap does, that nonpolar end of the molecule is dissolving the nonpolar oil or whatever. Mm -hmm. Got it. Yeah, it kind of makes water water. Okay. That's how I've heard it. The polarity also allows you to dissolve other things such as gases and things. Uh -huh. So that's something that you don't normally think too much about, but there is a lot of gas sort of dissolved in just water in general. Mm -hmm. uh, sure. Well, you may actually think about it because there are areas I, that... I was going to correct you there, but then I was like, no, he's probably referring to normal people. Right. Yeah. So, well, correct me there. Well, aquatic organisms who extract oxygen from using gills or something like that are extracting dissolved oxygen would be one example of that yeah and so there Aquatic. are some dead areas where sure for whatever reason there's no oxygen around and it kills all the mm -hmm. fish and it kills all the things and right 
And yeah. carbon dioxide also dissolves into water. And mm. so things like aquatic plants are able to extract a certain amount of their carbon dioxide out of the water. Cool stuff. Oh, and one more thing about how the stickiness of water, let's come back to that, is the, the fact that it's liquid at room temperature, hmm. right? Because you would think, if I were room, to think- Room temperature, is that like a physics term? Yeah, it's it's, <laughs> it's 300 degrees Celsius. Oh, sorry, 300 degrees Kelvin. Okay. It's about 25 degrees Celsius, so. Okay, all right, all right. Is that a room at standard temperature and pressure? That's yeah. the assumption, yes. Okay. All right. Yeah. But, uh, you know, you would expect that maybe like heavier molecules might just like be more likely to be a, a liquid or solid at room temperature. And for the most part, that's true. Like the very heavy things, iron, uranium, whatever, they're all going to be a solid. But then if you think about it, like oxygen, gas, O2, mm -hmm. two oxygen mm -hmm. molecules, nitrogen, gas is two nitrogen molecules. CO2 is carbon and two oxygens. So that's very heavy. But those, so those are, all, are all on a molecule to molecule basis, heavier than a molecule of water. Exactly. Okay. I see what you're saying. Yeah, that is weird. I haven't quite thought about it from that particular angle. Yeah, that is, that's interesting. Okay. But what happens is that it's not just a single Mickey Mouseier that's trying to float around. It's this big <laughs> cluster of Mickey mice that are making it sink and be a liquid at room temperature. And the reason that they're a cluster is because of their polarity their hydrogen bonding to each other right got it okay all right so so that's all liquid but but the title of this episode is ice ice baby so let's get to what does ice actually look like mm -hmm. i will say i i went into a, a rabbit hole for a little bit and i found that there are up to 18 maybe distinct phases of ice that have whoa. distinct features and so forth and i, I okay. started reading up on all that and i was like whoa how does all that work and all this stuff? And oh, uh, see, I knew Kurt Vonnegut was onto something. Yeah, with Ice Nine. Okay. Yeah, there is an Ice Nine, mm -hmm. but it's different properties. I, I don't know where Kurt got his information. Uh, okay. It doesn't like take over the entire world just by touching it and stuff like that. Oh, okay. yeah, but that was a good book and that's a good reference. I like that. Oh, thank you. But once I started reading all these things, then I it wasn't until this morning that I realized like they're talking about like thousands of times greater than the than what we have here on Earth, and so. Uh. Then I was like, okay, well, that was a waste of <laughs> an hour there. <laughs> so, but so the, the ice that we experience here on Earth is just which one? What it's called is Ice 1H. Oh, Ice 1H. Okay. Yeah. There is another one called From Ice 1G. 1C, actually. Oh. So it is interesting when we're talking about like astronomical things. Because there are some exoplanets that have been discovered. These are planets mm -hmm. around other stars that they can tell that the surface of these planets are covered in water. And so we know that they're covered in water, but they're so massive that they probably don't have ice like we have ice. They're probably a different form of ice. Got it. And so it would be a very weird world if we happen to visit them and try to interact with them. Huh, okay. But anyway, the most common form on Earth is the ice 1H. The reason it has that H there is because it's a hexagonal lattice. Oh, uh, okay. And so there's another one called ice 1C, which has a cubic lattice. That's going to be my guess, yeah. Yeah, so... But hexagonal crystalline structure is like... Imagine you had... If you were looking down on it, you would see hexagons in the pattern. Mm -hmm. And then you have sort of layers of hexagons like that. Mm -hmm. What's interesting, though, is that when the water is liquid, we're clumpy. So everything mm -hmm. is packed really tight together. But when they want to form a crystal, they want to form this hexagonal lattice, which is actually spread apart more than the clumpiness of the liquid water. Hmm. 
And so that's unique because most materials, when you cool them down, they, they will shrink. Right. So liquid water actually does shrink. It, you know, if you have near boiling, it's going to expand more than if it's near freezing. Yeah. But then when you're only a degree or two above freezing, all of a sudden now that reverses and it starts to expand back out. Yeah. Isn't isn't water at its most dense at like 3C or yeah. that? Yeah. And so that's why the bottoms of the oceans are about 3 degrees C, sort of a constant 3 degrees C is because that's the most dense water. Hmm. If you think about it, it'd be, I don't even know if life would be possible on Earth or it'd, it'd certainly be very different if water got more dense as it froze, as most other things do, as you just suggested. Mm-hmm because then the oceans and lakes and rivers would freeze from the bottom up. Right. So most right. So of as the it ocean is now, would be frozen. Ice, so ice floats because it's less dense. Yeah. And so, you know, we ha- we can have glaciers and we can have, if a lake freezes over, it freezes on top first mm-hmm. and it stays on top first and maybe it gets thicker and thicker if it gets really cold. Mm-hmm. But you're right. Below that is all warmer liquid. Yeah. So how would that really affect things? Well, I mean, if it were not the case, then life on earth, from the beginning would have had to adapt to being able to freeze solid <laughs> hmm. or somehow to make its way with very, very little amounts of liquid water because it's hmm. liquid water that is kind of the medium in which all of these biochemical reactions take place for mm-hmm. all living things. And if it weren't a liquid at normal earth temperatures, room temperature, yeah, I don't, I don't know that life as we know it could have gotten started really yeah that fundamental property of water is pretty critical yeah i mean i i can definitely think about it for like a lake freezing over that you'd get a layer on top because that's where it's the coldest but that would immediately sink down right and so you'd have this good convection property basically of what is normally happening in the atmosphere of like hot air rises and cold air sinks you'd Definitely have that going on in the in the lake, and the whole thing would get cold much, much faster, mm-hmm. and probably be permanently frozen once mm-hmm. we got down to the bottom of it. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah, huh. and so then that's freezing, and and that's why ice cubes float is because the crystal structure is less dense, and so they're always floating on top. And what's nice about that also is that the ice cube then, when the liquid from your drink that you're trying to cool down touches that, it gets cold, and that sinks down, and so you do have this convection cycle to continue cooling off the whole thing yeah but then if the ice cubes just sank then they'd just be at the bottom and you'd have hot liquid at the top and and cold stuff at the bottom Mm -hmm. so speaking of ice cubes i'm probably going to have a beverage later this evening have you ever noticed how it's not just like a purely clear piece of glass it's kind of cloudy in there yeah and but then if you let it if you let it melt in a glass all the way it's not like it melts into sort of a cloudy water right right So what is that cloudiness and where does it go? Well, we actually touched a little bit on this when we talked about how gases can be absorbed in the liquid. Uh And so just normal water has a lot of gases just dissolved inside of it. But it turns out that the amount of gas that can be trapped in there is somewhat temperature dependent. Hmm. And so it turns out that when it gets really cold, then the liquid will try to let go of all that gas. But what happens when we, if I have an ice tray, fill it up with water and I stick it in the freezer, there's a few things going on with that. The biggest effect though, is that the ice tray, you know, the first things that will freeze will be the outside. So the the top of your liquid layer and the the sides of your liquid layer are all going to freeze first. And it's going to trap all the rest of the liquid inside of this cell. Mm -hmm. And so then when the gas is trying to be expelled from being dissolved inside of that, it just keeps getting pushed deeper and deeper into the center of the ice cube. Okay. And so what's really happening there is that you have these little tiny bubbles trapped inside of the ice. And so that's why the ice cubes are cloudy. Okay. And now if you go to a very fancy bar 
sometimes <laughs> they have these ice cubes that they'll put in there and they're clear all the way through. And so uh-huh. those places have a very special ice makers that, first of all, they use distilled water so that there's no other impurities dissolved in there. And then they will actually freeze it sort of layer by layer to build it up so that every bit of it is clear. Hmm. So Interesting. I mean... <laughs> And I suppose that's uh, supposed to make the cocktail more aesthetically pleasing or something. That's the only purpose. Yeah. I mean, it's, okay. it's going to cool it down the same way. <laughs> it's just, uh-huh. that, I mean, those ice cubes look really nice. I will yeah. admit. Yeah. I mean, I guess if I'm thinking of like what pictures look like of a cocktail in a magazine or something. Yeah. For like, you know, like a bourbon ad or something. And mm-hmm. they're always pure glass looking ice cubes in there. I mean, it's probably, you know, just for the sake of the picture, it's probably not actually water anyway. It's probably something other than right. you know, water, but they're trying to simulate the effect of this high end ice you're talking about. Well, that's interesting. I actually wonder if that's why we have this concept of the high end ice and why they Which have special first? ice makers. Yeah. That's interesting. <laughs> you know, because they probably had all these ads with, they just used a, a piece of, glass or something because they're taking all these pictures in a hot room and and they Mm -hmm. don't want that to melt and then people are like no that's what it should look like that's exactly what it should look like (laughs) since we're talking about ice and being slippery and maybe some weather related things uh here in oregon we don't put salt on the roads in most places Mm -hmm. but it's probably a good question to ask like why do people do that in the first place and again this all has to do with the dissolved materials in there so if i have pure water and I freeze it, it's going to turn into this perfect crystal and everything will be happy there. But if I have a lot of, say, salts dissolved in that, then I have all these defects and okay. maybe sodium, maybe chlorine, maybe whatever the salt is made up of. And so then that seems like it would disrupt that ability to form that lattice. Is that what's going on? Exactly. Okay. And the more concentrated the salt, the lower the temperature you can actually go before mm-hmm. it does freeze over no matter what. So if you add more and more salt, it'll freeze at a lower and lower temperature. But there is a limit to this. Mm-hmm. And that limit happens at exactly zero degrees Fahrenheit. What are the chances? Well, it's not it's not by chance, Chad. Really? Yeah. <laughs> so the temperature scale of Fahrenheit was actually set up so that zero would be at the point of supersaturated salt water freezing. What do you mean by supersaturated? You can't, well, you've dissolved as much salt as you possibly can. Yep. And any more salt you put in just precipitates. Yep. It just sits down at the bottom and never. Okay. Yeah. And so the reason he did that, I think is because he thought it would be easier and more consistent to make it super dirty than it it would be to make it super pure. Uh, He's probably right about that at the, at the time anyway. Yeah. And so this was Baron von Fahrenheit. We'll go with that. Sure. (laughs) Sure. Okay, so I understand why water is sticky, and I understand why ice is less dense, but what accounts for the slipperiness of ice? If anything, why isn't it a little bit sticky? Yeah, well, there have been a lot of theories. The most prominent has, what most people would probably answer if you ask them, if you pulled somebody up on the street, Mm -hmm. would be that, you know, knowing that ice forms in these lattices that are less dense than the liquid form, that it could just be pressure itself, right? That if you put pressure on it, you could, in theory, force it down back into a liquid state. Mm. The problem with that, though, is, first of all, the pressures involved are not typically enough to make that really happen. Like you standing on ice is not putting enough pressure on the ice to really do much of that. Okay. I think I've heard this explanation when somebody was explaining how ice skates work, like the blade of an ice skate, Mm -hmm. which has the entire weight of a human on just a really, really narrow ridge. And so does that create enough pressure on the ice? No, actually, nor does it... Well, that's debatable. But even with that, Uh you would not be able to skate below, say, about three Celsius or so. Okay. And so that doesn't actually affect it at all. 
Whereas professional ice rinks and stuff, they're very careful at what temperature the ice is. Figure skating, they keep the ice at a balmy negative 5.5 degrees Celsius. Okay. And hockey rinks keep theirs at negative 9 degrees Celsius. And so this idea of the pressure at those low temperatures would not make sense. You could not apply enough pressure. Okay. A more recent explanation of all this stuff comes again at looking at the crystal structure. So remember, we have this regular pattern of the H2O. So you have this lattice of alternating H's and O's and so forth. Mm -hmm. But what happens at the surface when you have the interface between the ice and air, Mm -hmm. we have this boundary there where we don't have a good transition between the two. Okay. This is actually pretty common with all sorts of materials. And it's something that material scientists really have to grapple with a lot. I mean, we've talked on this show about how silicon will form a chemical bond and make SAO2, which is just glass, Mm. at the boundary of silicon. Okay. Um, Well, water isn't going to bond like those things. And so instead, what it does is it makes a thin layer of liquidish water at that interface. Liquidish, okay. Yeah, so... And so are we talking like one molecule? Thick, no, it's it's a little bit thicker than that. A little bit thicker than that? Yeah. Okay. So we have this thin layer of liquid on top of the surface of all ice. And the thicker this layer happens to be is going to be more slippery than if it's really, really thin. And so temperature plays a big role on that. So if we're right at the boundary of freezing, then there will be a thick layer of this liquidish, and if you're much much so, colder than that, so that's when the ice is the slickest. Is when right it's right at the transition, just below freezing. Right. Yeah, yeah. That's why the road was so slick this morning, as my car thermometer said it was exactly 32 degrees. Yeah, and man, it was slick yeah. for certain stretches. Well, and that's something that I learned when I was living in Michigan mm. is that what generally would happen is we'd have like a snowstorm early in the season. And everybody would be off the roads because they forgot to be careful. Uh But then it drops way down and we're well below freezing most of the winter. And so uh, then it's perfectly safe to drive. Like you hardly ever skid. And that's because the ice is so cold that this liquidish water layer that you're talking about is very, very thin. Right. Or perhaps absent. I I would say it's still there, but it's very thin. Super thin. Yeah. Okay. So it's not very slick at all. It's it's very thin and pretty safe after that. Okay. And so I always want to correct my relatives who live in upper Midwest areas and they're like, oh, we're so good at driving in the snow. And and it's like, well, you're driving in dry snow and and places like Kentucky and Kansas and Oregon, when we get it, Uh we're always right around freezing the entire time. And so it's super slick. Yeah. But so since you brought up skating, Uh let's talk a little bit about that. So what's really happening there is that, you know, the front of the skate is going to strip away the liquidish layer as you're trying to glide by. Okay. So it's kind of like the keel is cutting through the water. Yeah. Okay. Now the ice itself is like, whoa, hold on. We like that liquidish layer. And so it will convert the newly exposed areas to liquidish layers. Why does that happen? And is that something that happens instantaneously or fast enough that the blade is it's happening while the blade is still there? Right. Okay. Yeah. So my cartoon of it would be like, I've stripped away the top layer. And now the next layer down has the same problem. It's exposed to this transition from solid mm. to air. And so then it quickly releases sort of the next layer to be liquidish. Mm. Again. And if I mm-hmm. were to strip that away, then the next layer down would be liquidish, whereas okay. before it was perfectly solid. And as the skate goes on, then some of the liquidish that I've pushed away will come back in and try to fill back in again. So now we have a thicker layer of liquidish material. Mm. And so by doing that, then that does make it very slick. And so then you can glide and do all the things that you need to do. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. That makes, that makes total sense. I never, I just assumed that an ice rink was maintained at a temperature that was cold enough for water to freeze. And that was that. (laughs) 
Right. It, was, it wasn't like it didn't make a difference if it was negative five degrees or negative nine degrees. It's, it's just ice. Yeah. But what I'm learning is that it's not just ice. It's ice that's got a tiny layer of water on it. And how cold it is determines how thick that layer of water is. And how thick that layer of water is determines how slippery it is. Right. Huh. I feel and like, by the I feel way, like... this is also happening with curling. Well, because <laughs> you know I love curling. I love me some curling too. Yeah. Have you ever done curling? Oh yeah, I have. Have actually. you really? Oh, yeah. it looks so fun. Will you take me curling sometime? <laughs> uh, there is a place in Portland, supposedly. I've never gone. Really. Okay. Yeah, a college roommate of mine, his wife plays near Washington, D.C. a lot. Uh-huh. And like, she's really into it. And so she took us out one day and yeah, it was, it was harder than I expected it to be. But oh, I bet. I bet. So basically, first of all, what you do is you have one shoe, you put on this Teflon on top of your shoe so that you okay. can slide on one foot really, really well. And then your uh-huh. other foot, you have some traction so that you can kind of push off and glide. And, and, um, and does the Teflon work by being super smooth? Is that the yes. idea? Okay. And then you have this big rock that you're trying to slide across the ice. And, Mm -hmm. but your teammates are there with these little brooms and they're actually in front of you trying to push on the ice. And what they're doing is they're stripping away the top layer of the liquidish, you know, so that when it comes back in, it's nice and smooth for your rock and they're controlling the amount of friction. And so by brooming, what they're doing is making it slicker. Yeah. in front and because what you're they temporarily push the water away and so then that makes the frozen water that was there previously then sort of immediately release into being water again mm-hmm. and then the water that they've pushed away comes back and so now the layer of water is thicker got it okay yeah yeah i was yeah. wondering if i mean I, I would like to see like a experiment where a stone is pushed with exactly the same force Mm-hmm. And then brushing is done in front of one, but not the other. And you could sort of demonstrate how... It is very noticeable. Yeah. I mean, actually, if you watch in the Olympics and stuff like that, they will stop grooming towards the end just to make it stop. Uh-huh. And they will okay. they'll broom it in certain areas to get it to turn. Uh-huh. You know, so if it's slicker on one side and more friction on the other side, then it'll turn towards drag. the friction side. And, uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, that sounds fun. Uh, cool. So well, let's any- bring it all around. Oh. Bring it all around. Yeah, bring it home. The, going back to the driving issues that you were talking about. So when the car is going over it, you're also squeezing out the liquid from underneath the tires. Mm-hmm. So that's pushing away the liquid and then it gets replaced. So it's a little bit more slippery for a, a little bit of time afterwards. Hmm. All right. Well, cool, Mike. I think I learned something today. Well, I should hope so. <laughs> <laughs> well, have a good winter time yeah. knowing yeah. new things about ice. Yeah. Pay attention to the temperature and drive safely, people. This episode was recorded on the beautiful campus of Lynchville University. Rodi Ortega wrote our theme music. If you like this episode or others like it, you should subscribe to the podcast. That way you'll download the latest episode as soon as it becomes available. While there, leave a comment and a rating, and that'll help other people find our podcast. If you have ideas or questions about science that you would like us to address, email us at crisscrossingsci at gmail.com. All one word, all lowercase. Or hit us up on Facebook. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.